This is episode 140 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Blood Vessel Engineering with Dr. Yosef Penning. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Speaking of which, who do you want to hear on the podcast? If you know a researcher that would make a great guest, then we want to hear your suggestions. Send them to us by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com or on Twitter at stemcellpodcast. Today, we have Dr. Yosef Penninger from the University of British Columbia on the podcast to talk about his research investigating human blood vessel organoids as a model of diabetic vasculopathy. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, you know, our episode today has a guest who's from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. If you're interested in finding out more about the Vancouver science scene, then we'd like to invite you to check out Science in the City. The Science in the City website and newsletter are your source for all life science news events and jobs taking place in the greater Vancouver area. Check out Science in the City today at www.scienceinthecity.com or follow them on Twitter, at ScienceVanCity. Now on to the roundup, which today is a single-cell sequencing extravaganza for you all. We're going to start with a story from Richard Liu out of Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So background, uh, abnormal development of the glial progenitors, that's including astrocyte lineage precursors or oligodendrocyte precursors, it contributes to tumor genesis and various neurological diseases. And the tumorigenic cell of origin molecular links between native glial progenitors and precancerous or neoplastic cells during glioma transformation are not defined. So, you know, we've done a lot of sequencing of the actual gliomas and cancers in the brain and even single-cell seq level to look at heterogeneity, but we haven't really gotten to the, the precancerous state. We can't really understand the heterogeneity um, that, that contributes, or, you know, the little bad actors. You know, astrocyte heterogeneity, it's been characterized in different regions of the adult brain, but these are like population-based approaches, so you can't really get the full extent of the underlying heterogeneity within those progenitors. And there have been single-cell seq studies showing regional diversi- diversity in the oligo lineage. Um, this is all in mouse. But whether or not this the oligo pool has diverse states during brain development and or malignancy it has not been explored okay so what uh richard Liu and his group are doing at cincinnati children's there what they've done is they they performed a high throughput single cell rna sequencing approach on prospective astrocyte and oligoprogenitor lineages from neonatal mouse cortices, and they also looked at it in a murine model of glioblastoma. So they were looking at single cell level, both in development as well as in this cancerous state, and they identified uh, distinct transitional intermediate states uh, and their developmental trajectories in the astroglial and oligodendroglial lineages. And also they, they elucidated these uh, analogous intermediate progenitors 
during brain tumorigenesis. So the same kind of progenitor cells that you saw in development, they were cropping up again in, during tumorigenesis, uh, wherein the, the oligodendrocyte progenitor intermediates were abundant, very proliferative, and they progressively became reprogrammed toward a stem-like state, which was really further susceptible to this malignant transformation as they started stemming out there. And then they went on to identify the ZFP36I1 as necessary for the oligoastrocyte lineage transition, as well as glioma growth. So by going deep into the single-cell seek, Dr. Liu and his group have find this kind of common phenomenon in development and tumor genesis and perhaps find a target. Not to knock out development, you want to do that, but those tumors, get rid of them. Staying in the single seek world, we're moving into NYU. This is from Ionis Ifantis. Okay, he's a big wig over there at NYU. He looks at the blood, hematopoietic stem cells and progenitors. In this case, though, he was really interested in the niche. So hematopoietic stem cells, they're maintained in the specialized bone marrow microenvironment that's composed of a lot of different cells, mesenchymal stromal cells, vascular endothelial cells. People have been talking about contribution. We just had Fournette on a little while ago. He talks about how the megas contribute. There's all kinds of cells that play here in maintenance of the HSC niche. And previous studies have suggested a kind of a, a high degree of cellular complexity in the bone marrow architecture. So it's not just this cell and that cell. It's the combination. It's this compound niche. And that compound niche is comprised of the heterogeneity between vascular and mesenchymal, as well as the hematopoietic cells themselves, right? So studies that address the molecular heterogeneity and functional plasticity of the microenvironment, they've been really limited because it's hard to really identify, much less isolate, these rare populations in the marrow that may be you know, responsible for maintenance of the hematopoietic stem or progenitor cell state, or mobilization for that matter. It's a compound niche, and we don't know to what degree the little guys are, are what cells and to what degree they're, they're contributing to uh, maintenance of that niche. So... Ionis, he profiled 17,374 single cells of the mouse bone marrow niche in order to get out that. He did a single cell sequencing of those 17 plus thousand cells. Uh, and they did that both in homeostasis as well as conditions of stress-induced hematopoiesis and revealed a previously unrecognized or underappreciated, I guess, level of cellular heterogeneity within the niche, and they also resolved the cellular sources of pro-hematopoietic growth factors, chemokines, and membrane ligands. So, you know, within that, the 17,000-plus cells, there were these few guys that, you know, cropped up that seemed to be accounting for a lot of the, the, the goodies. They were, they were feeding the hematopoietic cells. Uh, so the study, I mean, overall, it, it shows that there's considerable remodeling also of the niche elements when you stress, okay? And the major point I think there was showing that there's a kind of perturbation of the notch uh, pathway, the DLLs, the delta-like ligands that are specifically expressed on the vascular cells within the niche. 
and they're down-regulated in stress conditions. So in the absence of vascular DLL4, which we kind of know, hematopoietic stem cells, they'll, they'll prematurely uh, lean towards a myeloid transcription program. Okay, and he confirms this. He shows this independently um, himself uh, and his group. And this does a couple things. One, it shows uh, that there's this dynamic heterogeneous molecular landscape uh, that's expressed within the bone marrow niche, and it's highly sensitive to stress. And specifically, it identifies uh, DLL4, this notch ligand, uh, as being down-regulated under stress conditions, which causes mobilization and, and kind of bias towards the myeloid. Um, and perhaps this can provide a, a molecular uh, target. You know, it provides the mechanism to explain this stress-induced lineage specification, but maybe that could be a target that you could maybe decrease your myeloid contingent. You know, I don't know, maybe it's the, the, the sequelae of, of stress related to myeloid. I mean, we talk about in this podcast previously how myeloid cells can underlie a lot of these uh, degenerative processes, you know, in the heart. Um, so, hey, if you're losing sleep and that's causing increased myeloid component, maybe you can rescue that with a little DLL4. I don't know. Maybe not. We'll have to ask Ionis what his next move is on that. I'll tell you what my next move is. I'm going to talk about another paper that used single-cell sequencing. Can you believe it? Yes, number three. Thankfully, this is the last one. There's only so many single-cell seq stories out there, but this is a big one. Uh, it's from uh, one, of the, one of the researchers I admire. I've met. She's so nice, and she's so smart, and she's so accomplished. Uh, this is a, a story from her and her colleague, Dana Pear. This is Anna Katerina Hadjitanakis. Kat Hadjitanakis at... MSK right next door to me, lover. Notably, I want to put this out there, this paper, which is a Nature article, just came out, was first posted on the BioArchive in uh, November, mid-November 2018. So here's an example of a story that was put out on the pre-print pre, um, you know, there on the BioArchive and... You know, people say that if you if you spoil it there on the bioarchive, you'll you'll lose your impact. Not in this case. It's a Nature paper, and it's a Nature paper because it is it go they go so deep. I mean, this, the two labs here. It's the developmental lab, which is Cat Hadjinakis, and it's a computational and systems biology lab, which is a Dana Pears lab there. And and you can see why they had to come together on this because this is some. Um, deep, deep bioinformatics analysis where they're making all kinds of algorithms. They developed a new algorithm called Harmony, and they added it to this other one called Palette. They had to get two algorithms working. Can you believe that? Anyway, let me take a step back, all right? So the gut endoderm, that's what we're talking about here. It's the emergent landscape of the mouse gut endoderm at single cell resolution. Oh, the gut endoderm is a precursor of... It's the precursor, both respiratory and digestive tracts, and you know the associated organs. So those are those are those are a big deal. All the gut, there's the liver, there's your lungs. You know, endoderm-derived organs, they they do good stuff for you. Um, and endoderm, notably, it, it it emerges twice during mammalian development. There's a primitive or extra-embryonic endoderm that arises in the blastocyst stage early in the mouse. It's like day three and a half. 
and that predominantly contributes to this parietal and visceral yolk sac endoderm. And then later, again, there's this definitive endoderm that is specified. It's around day seven in the mouse, around gastrulation. And previous studies by CAT have shown that there's the gut endoderm is actually comprised of cells from both those waves of endoderm. And common endodermal genes are expressed by both those cells. So it's a real challenge to use markers, the classic markers, to discriminate the descendants of the embryonic and extra-embryonic. Um, the, well, the extra-embryonic and embryonic descendants of these two types of en endoderm. You can't really distinguish what comes from where. All right, so the goal here was to really unravel that. And they did this by, they went crazy here, generating 112,217. Take that, Giannis, with your 17,000. They went over 100,000 single-cell transcriptomes representing all endoderm populations within the mouse embryo until mid-gestation. And this is intense because they went from blast, isolated a bunch of cells to go you know, for single-cell seek, and then went successive stages. They took the, these endoderm populations you know, all the way up to mid-gestation, 100,000-plus cells. And what they found was that the trajectory of the endoderm cells... Um, that they, as they acquired embryonic versus embryonic fates, uh, they, that they like emerged separately, but ultimately converged within the nascent gut endoderm. And they were revealed to be globally similar, but they, they still retained specific aspects of the lineage history. Um, and what they ultimately showed, and I think this is subtle, subtle but it's really, I think, a, a big idea and that's that throughout embryogenesis, these cells, they acquire a transcriptional identity that is, is reflected, that reflects their future fate and spatial positioning before the, the manifestations of that organization is overt. So their, their transcriptional identity and, you know, their, their, it, it's, it's set. Um, even before they, they acquire that fate and bef acquire that actual organization. Uh, and ultimately, I think this is going to be really important to, to providing a improved differentiation protocols for making all these different endoderm derivatives because they really went soup to nuts of all these single cells identifying unique signatures and then positioning them within the embryo. So they have a whole crap load of bioinformatic information that you can drill down into and it'll give you a lead on how to get really nice refined uh, endoderm populations with high efficiency. So we can expect that to uh, come down the pipe pretty soon. <sighs> and that's the end of our single cell extravaganza. And so now we're going to move into another familiar face. It seems like every episode, well, just last episode we told a story from uh, another guy I admire, another guy from MSK. What do you know? Lorenz Studer, back at it again. This is uh, a story that has some, I don't know, I mean, I'll get to it at the end, but it's maybe some kind of like bioethical implications. It's kind of a trip. Let me step back. Brain organoids, of course. Got to talk about some organoids. If it's not single cells, it's an organoid. Um, Brain organoids, this is, they recapitulate the cellular diversity and on some level the like architectural features that are a characteristic of discrete brain regions. But the, 
individual brain regions are ordered randomly and non-producibly. So they lack pretty much the, the AP, D, dorsoventral, and mediolateral axes. That is very important. We know the brain, it's all about complex structure. All the function that comes from the brain follows from the complex structure. So um, the, the topography, let's call it, of the brain uh, is vital, okay? It's, it's very important. And that's dictated by gradients of signaling activity. You know, these morphogen gradients classically dictate like the floor plate. For instance, Sonic Hedgehog is known to specify floor plate, and that's kind of an early patterning event by a morphogen. And, and the, the way that, I guess, a lot of groups have gotten around the fact that you can't get the really superstructure, top, topographically organized brain is that they just focus on like these little micro, right? So they'll get, they'll, they'll say, forget about the, the whole thing. Let's just, let's just look at the, the cellular identity within a specific brain area, okay? We'll just get like a little bit of, we'll just look at, hey, forebrain organoid. Here's a midbrain organoid. Here's an optic cup organoid. Remember those optic cup organoids a couple years? It was big. That was like one of the first big organoid stories, which was such a trip. I wonder what happened with that. We got to get back to that. Anyway, I digress. Other groups more recently, they've been, instead of going in that little micro approach, they've been trying to get a little bit more meta by creating a dorsoventral axis by fusing organoids. We talked about this. Remember with the connectivity, they'll take a dorsal and ventral organoid and fuse them. And that can create some kind of like, there's some tissue interactions and cell migration in there that's all good. But it, it fails to capture the full continuum of regional diversity in the human forebrain. All right, so that leads to Lorenz, the man, the myth. You all know him. He, he's focusing on hedgehog. I alluded to it. A hedgehog, signaling factor, graded expression, specifies spatial organization of discrete progenitor, progenitor domains okay, in the brain. What they did is they used this, this factor. It's a potent morphogen for neural specification. They set it up in this inducible uh, human pluripotent stem cell line, which is, you know, pretty basic. They got an inducible sonic hedgehog. But what was cool about this is then they developed a method to embed these inducible sonic hedgehog secreting cells at one pole of a, of a spheroid, of a, you know, human pluripotent stem cell spheroid to mimic this developmental organizer. organizer. So this was like, this, the science of this was, it was about positioning. They created this kind of a hack to implant this thing in a pre-organoid and then let it differentiate. Um, the hypothesis being that if you introduce this little signaling center in there, a little mini organizer, you'd get the, the nidus of positional identity, which would then, you know, blossom into a well-patterned, forebrain organoid, and that's what they found. These, these sonic hedgehog patterned forebrain organoids, they established major forebrain subdivisions that are positioned with in vivo-like topography, okay? So again, they are recapitulating in vivo-like topography in human brain organoids. As I started this uh, paper, I talked about how the bioethical implications are. I mean, how long before you got these brain organoids, you know, thinking for themselves, 
going to college, you know? We're going to have to put them on the dole. Never going to leave the house like my kid's sister. Love you, Jill. Anyway, it's a bit of a trip. We got those brain organoids. I don't think anyone really thinks we got thinking brain organoids in there, but the implication here being that if you can create the, or plant the seed of an of a organoid that has the topography of a human brain, you know, raises the possibility of then implanting that brain, having little mini brains. This is like the nightmare that everyone was talking about 15 years ago, now coming to rear its head. No pun intended. Um, all right, on to the last story. This is in a little nod to our guest. You know, he wasn't always about these blood vessel organoids. He's been about a million different things. He came up with, uh, as an immunologist, this isn't exactly an immunology story. It's a myeloid story, but it's in the blood. So I'm going with it. Okay, sue me. This is another story with an MSK root as well. MSK is bigging up. Very productive. Amazing. This is Frederick Geisman from MSK, but also Claudia Waskow from uh, Dresden. So it's not all MSK. Calm down. They're not taking over. This story about osteoclasts. All right, osteoclasts, we know them as these multinucleated giant cells. They resorb the bone, the clasts. Remember the blast, make it, the clasts, resorb it. Uh, and this is how you get this continuous remodeling of the skeleton. It's constantly breaking down, building up, breaking down, building up. But this also actually plays in the bone marrow hematopoietic niche, that there's continuous remodeling of bone marrow hematopoietic niche by osteoclasts, and therefore, if you have defective osteoclast activity, you get osteopetrosis, not porosis, petrosis and bone marrow failure. Um, whereas if you get excess osteoclast activity, you get the porosis, you get bone loss. All right, so, and, and here's the thing, you know, we know that osteopetrosis can be partially treated at least with bone marrow transplantation in humans and mouse. And that's how we know that's, that the, the osteoclast um, probably arise from hematopoietic cells, probably have a hematopoietic origin, right? But the developmental origin, the lifespan of osteoclasts in adult hasn't really been defined. Um, mechanisms that ensure maintenance of the osteoclast function through life, no one's really looking at it. Um, but, you know, they don't need to look at it. Because here we go. Waska and Geisman, they figured it out. Uh, they report here in this nature letter that osteoclasts originate from embryonic erythromyeloid progenitors. Okay? Add to that that you can transfuse hematopoietic stem cell derived monocytic cells in uh, newborn mice to rescue bone development in this uh, autosomal osteopetrosis model that they have, okay? So you can infuse monocytes in there. Um, and then, okay, this is, I think this is what's more interesting, postnatal uh, of maintenance of osteoclasts. How does that work, all right? It, it involves iterative fusion of circulating blood monocytic cells with long-lived osteoclast syncytia. Okay, so there's this mac daddy osteoclast syncytia OG, it's been there forever, hanging out like Jabba the Hutt, just like consuming these circulating blood monocytic cells, all right, adding nuclei. And what's really interesting about this and cool is that, that when you transfuse monocytic cells in there, 
you get gene transfer because the nuclei are incorporated into these long-lived OG osteoclasts, right? So you get like a, a transfer of the, of the monocytic genome into the osteoclast without a, a hematopoietic stem cell chimerism, okay? So you don't need to have the hematopoietic stem cell go in there and then that colonizes the bone marrow and makes for a chimeric niche. No, this is monocytes. It's not stem cell. They're going and being consumed, and that's creating this, chim- this kind of pseudo-chimerism, right? And the, the implication of this and the result of this, the application of this, is that you can rescue adult-onset osteopetrosis just by infusing with monocyte cells from a, a healthy person, Okay. So not only did they identify the developmental origin of osteoclast, as well as the mechanism that controls their maintenance uh, after birth, but it also you know, shows this strategy for really straightforward rescue of that uh, osteopetrosis phenotype. So you know, it's a, it's a big time application. All right, and that'll do it. We're gonna get into, well, we're not gonna talk about Osteoclass with Joe P. But we're going to talk about some immunology, I hope. But first, are you working with human endothelial cells? The stem cell EC Cult XF Culture Kit is a versatile serum-free medium formulation that can be used for the expansion of diverse, mature human endothelial cell types, as well as for the derivation and expansion of endothelial colony-forming cells, or ECFCs, from peripheral or umbilical cord blood. EC cult expanded endothelial cells retain the capacity to form capillary tube-like structures in vitro or mediate vascular pair in vivo. So explore more at www.stemcell.com slash EC dash cult. All right, guys, today we have Joseph Penninger. Uh, from the University of British Columbia. From 2002 to 2018, he was a scientific and founding director of the Institute for Molecular Biotechnology, the Austrian Academy of Sciences, that's IMBA, which is in Vienna, Austria. And now he's uh, the director of Life Sciences Institute at the University of British Columbia uh, and the Canada 150 chair in functional genetics. Um, Dr. Penninger's lab uses multidisciplinary techniques to model and study the fundamental mechanisms involved in human disease. His research falls into five broadly defined thematic areas, bone, brain, cancer, cardiovascular, and immunity. Currently, his lab is working on projects involving blood vessel engineering, the role of BH4 and T-cell biology, glycoproteomics in cancer, haploid stem cells. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And we're going to touch on only a, a, a fraction of that today in the interview, but it's going to be delightful. We're going to pack in what we can. Joseph, thanks for joining us today on the uh, podcast. It's a pleasure to, to be here. Well, believe me, man, the pleasure's all mine. You are a star in the field, and I'm a bit of a uh, fanboy, so please excuse me <laughs> if I'm gushing That's a little bit. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, why don't you start before I fall over myself? Um, uh, by telling us a little bit about your research focus there at uh, University of British Columbia. Yeah, I just moved here, so I have to get my research back up. Uh, so, uh, you know, my, my life was basically, I went as a postdoc to the 
University of Toronto. Mm. But my first career there was a professor of immunology. So, so I was involved in defining some of the early signaling pathways in T cells like CTLA4 and so on. And then I moved back to Europe for the last, last 17 years to develop this institute. And now I'm basically looking for a new challenge and, you know, and coming back to North America. And so what we really want to do is to, you know, one focus is clearly blood vessel engineering because this is what we just recently published. And, and I think with this, we opened a very interesting field for many researchers and of course for industry. Yeah, I mean, let's just start there. This recent Nature paper, uh, the blood vessel organoids. It, the real idea, I think, there, the thrust of it was about the modeling and demonstrating that these cells kind of had the glucose response and they were good for my modeling this, these processes. Um, can you just elaborate on exactly the system, like how, how you set it up, what the innovation there was and, and how you're using it to address disease mechanisms? Yeah, um, you know, many people, of course, the last years, that's, you know, that's why you do your podcast, there's amazing breakthroughs in stem cell technologies and, you know, how to grow stem cells, what to use them for. And uh, in Vienna, I was inspired by Jürgen Knoblich, who is next door and used to be my deputy director, who generated the first human brain organoid. So, so I got this new postdoc, Rainer, into my lab who comes from cardiovascular research and, and blood vessel research. And so, so we kind of contemplated where we could make a real impact. And then we realized that nobody had, you know, generated really perfect uh, capillary organoids. People had made endothelial cells, they made parasites, so there was already great literature out there from, from great laboratories. But to my knowledge, uh, people had actually never managed to make in vitro in organoids perfect blood vessels. Perfect blood vessels meaning, you know, a capillary with lumen covered by endothelium, a structurally supported by parasites and a basal membrane. So, so Rainer with other people in the lab set out to do this. And after many years of trying, um, he succeeded to do this. And, and it's, you know, it was really, really cool research by itself. But then he took it, or we took it a, a stage further, transplanting the, the human capillary organ. By the way, they're very robust. Uh, we can do this with many iPS cells, which is, of course, one of the key issues of organoid growth, that it's not just one or two cell lines which can do this, but it's very robust. So then we actually took these organoids, put them into immunodeficient mice, and to our amazement, and we still don't really understand how this works, uh, the human capillaries formed a perfect human vascular tree uh, being uh, hooked up to the mouse circulation. So this was pretty cool. And then we thought, what could we actually do with this? Uh, you know, it's, it's nice research, but could we bring this into the arena of uh, biomedical research and really translational research? And so we, we hooked up with pathologists working on diabetes because one of the major issues of, of diabetes is changes in blood vessels. That's the reason, you know, the structural and functional changes, that's the reason why people, that the wounds don't heal, why people get blind, um, why there's uh, kidney failure in diabetics. So, 
so you know relevant for for millions and millions of people and and the models where you can model this like dogs and but mouse and rat are uh, okay models but not so very good so we we basically hooked up with the pathologist and developed uh, first in, in vitro in organoids a model where we could expose the capillaries to high glucose, uh, inflammatory cytokines, IL-6, TNF-alpha. And to our amazement, we actually saw changes in the capillaries, which looked and feel and taste very similar to what one sees in human diabetic patients. And when we transplanted them into mice and made the mice diabetic, we actually saw these changes in the human vasculature, but not really in the mouse vasculature. So, so a long answer to a simple question. Now this show's full of long answers. That's what we do here, Joe. But um, <laughs> I guess the, the question I want to ask here, and I ask long questions, so forgive me. So the idea is like that they are responsive. How do you then now exploit that to try and like, I, I, you know, when you think of diabetes, usually in regenerative medicine, usually thinking, of course, the islet and the beta cells, right? So understanding how these processes uh, work at the level of the vasculature is critical because that's where all the disease sequelae are, right? But how do you then exploit that um, to, to try and, you know, find either treatments or mechanisms of disease acquisition? Could you just like really p put it on the nose for, for our listeners and myself? Uh, yeah, there, there are many avenues we can follow. Uh, <clears throat> first, uh, what was actually in our paper, we actually tested using the system, uh, you know, mo most, uh, you know, let's backtrack a little. So there are basically, as far as I understand, no medicine out there which actually treats this diabetic or can treat this diabetic vasculopathy. And I think one of the reasons is they're not good models. You know, if you study uh, diabetic changes in vasculature in Hubeck cells, as cool as this might be, but it might not really reflect what happens in patients. So, so I think we developed a really cool model. Of course, it's no model is ideal, but at least it's you know it's slowly getting us there. And having done this, we actually tested essentially all the diabetic drugs which are approved for the clinic, and none of them worked, which was not surprising because the mode of actions are very different. So. First, we could actually use this to, you know, to have a very good model to better test uh, leads of companies, uh, lead drugs, which might actually help in, in, in for these diabetic changes of the blood vessels. Uh, secondly, uh, in our paper, which is also described in our paper, we found a pathway which seems to be at least involved in 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 this diabetic vasculopathy, and this pathway is delta-like four produced by the endothelium, uh, sending a signal right to the next cell, the structural parasite, which then lays down and changes the environment in changing these uh, basal membranes, exposing and expanding the basal membranes, and <clears throat> via Nod3. So, so we have actually also shown in our paper that blocking Nod3 and delta-like four, we can nearly totally wipe out this, uh, this diabetic changes of the blood vessels. If that becomes a good drug target, I don't know, but at least it's a proof of principle that one can find something which could direct us in, in, into something like this. And the third thing is, which I had not realized, 
uh, when we published this, people came to me and said, you know, there's uh, big issues on on uh, non-healing wounds. I talked to Daniele De Luca, this Italian guy who made this amazing things on, you know, he, a gene correction of skin in, in kids mm -hmm. with, the, with uh, epidermolysis bullosa. Uh, so he told me, for instance, in burn victims, uh, when they even grow skin, sometimes it's very difficult to transplant it because uh, there's no vasculature under it. Uh, so, so one thing we concretely think about, and I'm already talking to some people, how we could accomplish this because it's, it sounds nice, but it's very difficult to do is really to grow human uh, vascular organoids and use them for transplantation, you know, put them in non-healing wounds, uh, put them uh, together with uh, skin transplants in, in deep burn wounds. And uh, now at UBC, my neighbor is uh, Tim Kiefer, one of the key people in, in growing, uh, you know, eyelid organoids and doing eyelid transplants in humans. And Tim just told me that one of the issues they face, that eyelids are not uh, taken after transplant is because there's no good vasculature to support this. So, so I think there are lots of avenues we can, we can follow now from direct transplantation of organoids, which sounds nice, but there are of course a lot of issues to be taken care of from, you know, serum free medium to GMP facilities to, you know, can you really transplant them for, and for how many people can you transplant them? To, to having good models for drug screening. Yeah, I'm glad you went to that third point because I was going to ask about the, you know, I feel like the, the more we've been in the stem cell field, the further away we've gotten from the initial pre premise of uh, regenerative and we've kind of shifted more towards the modeling. But of course, there's still a great interest in the regenerative approaches here. And so that's here. I was going to ask, so, you know, besides the understanding diabetes and the, and the pathology there, there is a regenerative aspect to this, which is kind of like laying down the vascular bed, I guess, for transplant. Is, is there also, though, the idea of, because I find, you know, a lot of uh, studies now of the focused on organoids are starting to recognize and acknowledge the fact that in vitro organoids have their limit because they're non-vascularized and so they can only get to a certain size. And, and by the same token, maybe it's transplant of uh, organoid-like tissue for regenerative purposes, an important aspect of that is going to be vascularization of those grafts. Do you yeah. see this kind of in vitro blood vessel organoid system that you've created here? Can it dovetail with other organ-specific things? Can you combine, can you get a islet, for instance, and nucleate it with uh, the endothelial cells in vitro so that these kind of co-organoid development of the vascular bed in a uh, organ-specific? Um... Uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Got and, it. You know, and, and we got an amazing feedback after we published our paper. And, and lots of the feedback was from people, you know, who were leading in the field in, in the particular organoid field because the next step, of course, for organoids must be to have, a, a, you know, a more complex organoids with various cell types, vasculature laid down, mm -hmm. gut organoids with vasculature, eyelid organoids with vasculature, <clears throat> kidney, kidneys with vasculature. Also, you know, there's already great progress in this done um, by Melissa Little and many others. So, yes, uh, uh, cardiovascular, 
you know, <clears throat> called card cardiomyocytes, where we can try to lay down organ uh, blood vessels, brain with blood vessels. So we actually tried for some time with Jürgen Knoblich's group uh, in Vienna, in my good old place, uh, because he developed many brains. And so it it's not that simple, uh, to be honest, because the culture conditions are very simple. Eventually, people will figure it out, but it's not straightforward. But we are actively working on this. and. You know, we're actually just publishing a paper now in one of the nature journals where we very, very details uh, uh, lay out the protocol so everybody can use it. So, and we are very, very happy to teach everybody how it's done so to progress the field. So, um, you know, it's interesting when you hear about your research focus or foci, I should say, because they run the gamut. Like I said earlier, bone, brain, cancer, cardiovascular, immunity. I mean, that's half the systems in the body. It makes sense that you would go. The impetus behind this blood vessel organoid story, it makes more sense to me now because it seems like if you're going to make all the organs in the body, you got to have some kind of plumbing there to vascularize them. Um, but seriously, in terms of like that broad research focus, how did you come to have such a broad repertoire of, of research foci in your lab? Was it just like you accumulate, you finish one problem, you move on to the next, and then that's, that's part of your repertoire? Or did you start out with a very broad base? Uh, I, I was actually trained in T-cell development in chicken. So this is where my, <laughs> where my training came from. And then I got early into establishing signaling pathways in T-cells. So, you know, my lab early on and as a postdoc, we laid some of the fundamentals of T-cell signaling, uh, you know, activation of immune cells. Which of course, which was interesting because at that time none of us realized, you know, that Jim Allison and others would go off and, you know, take all this knowledge to cancer therapy, which is brilliant. Um, so this is where I come from, from T cell biology, and so we started making lots of knockout mice. Uh, one of the reasons, for instance, why we knocked out rank ligand, which then became based on our genetic study, which was clear then the master regulator of bone loss, for instance. Uh, was because it was also identified in T cells. So, you know, this is uh, <clears throat> uh, so we got all of a sudden from our T cell biology into bone biology. And of course, since the phenotype was so amazing, uh, <clears throat> I did not want to just stick in my field but follow the phenotype. So, this is what mouse genetic allowed me to do to follow the phenotypes. Another phenotype, for instance, we followed was. Um, a gene which we published in Cell, I think in 2001 or 2002, uh, a gene called DREAM, uh, where we also thought it's a calcium handling EF hand protein which, act, which might be involved in T cell activation. So we thought this is how calcium signaling regulates T cell activation. And all of a sudden, you know, when we knocked it out, we found there was no effect in T cells whatsoever, which was very disappointing. But then we realized it's a regulator of pain perception. Mm -hmm. so, so we moved into the field of pain perception. And in cardiovascular, I was always in because uh, I, we defined early pathways of autoimmunity and how virus infections could, could you know, trigger uh, heart disease. So, so there also we came from the immune system. And, and honestly, you know, in the early... Uh, 2000s, 
we had published a lot of papers in a lot of top journals and and you know to find the next factor <clears throat> in t-cell receptor signaling and then the next factor uh, was nice but it i got quite bored by it so, <laughs> so i really wanted to you know <clears throat> expand my horizon nothing against this you know to do research like this but i was lucky to be in environments and i realized this now again coming back to north america and and i consciously say this I was lucky in my environment when I was in Toronto and worked with Amgen and then when I moved to the Academy of Sciences in Vienna to have enough money which permitted me to kind of step out from my field. Because in many cases, of course, the reality is people have to struggle from one grant to the next one. And then it's very difficult to step out of your field. Right. Yes, I mean, I guess I, that, that's kind of the answer I was hoping to hear. I mean, the fact that you you had, were lucky enough to get across that's that's important to note. But I really wanted to hear that you just got bored. I think that was my intuition. Is that you're just <laughs> your personality, the type of person you are. You're just it, the system doesn't so much matter as much as the problem in front of you. You're like a problem seeking and a problem solving juggernaut. Which brought me to an interesting fact that I found out about you. Uh -huh. um, and looking in Wikipedia that you actually have an asteroid named after you, which makes sense because you're like this unstoppable force. Can you explain why there's the Joseph Penninger asteroid floating around uh, in orbit? Uh, yes. So, so I, you know, when I moved back to, to Europe, uh, which was quite funny, so I, you know, I developed this institute, so they gave me $10 million and said I can do whatever I want, which was nice but actually it's not so easy <laughs> so how do you develop an institute how do you you know convince people to join an institute uh, you know how do you convince the politics to give even more money so so it was an interesting learning curve and early on they had this weird thing the austrians of the year so which was actually uh, on tv and, and somehow they nominated me and um, and uh, and the life voting, you know, something <laughs> really strange. So I got totally pissed, and, and in my amazement, actually won. Uh, had to lull acceptance speech, you know, on oh, TV. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and fell off stage, <laughs> into the arm of the of the then prime minister. Oh my gosh! <laughs> me. So we became really good friends because I guess I was the first guy who fell in <laughs> to the trunk, and and so you know people got notice of me, mm -hmm. and when people <clears throat> find new asteroids or, or or planets, they have the right to name them. Besides, they have the normal numbering of, of NASA or how that works. And so somebody saw me on TV and decided to name the asteroid he had just discovered after me and was was very nice. <laughs> I was totally speechless. <laughs> so yes, this asteroid is the number, you know, like in the little prince's number, I don't know, 12, 14, 8, 12, uh, is somewhere circling the, the universe. And, well, that is a pretty notable distinction. I think that balances out the ignominy of, of falling off the stage drunk at your acceptance speech, but, you know, it's in balance in the world. It's, uh, it's, it's all, uh, 
in good fun, I guess. So, you know, like an asteroid, uh, except at low Earth orbit, I guess, you've been all around, not just because, you know, you're speaking all over, but you've, you've traveled widely in your professional career, and you've talked about these moves you've made. Tell me about that. I mean, founding director of IMBA for 15-plus for years, now back to Canada. You talked about how it's hard. To, I mean, kind of alluded to how it's tough to get get started back again. What What's... What are the challenges with moving a lab huge like yours, you know, across the pond? What's the upside uh, and and downside of making a move like that? Could you talk yeah. about it? Yeah, I mean, I developed IMBA for the last, you know, I moved there 2002 and there was a hole in the ground. That was the first, um, first person they hired. So I established the whole place, you're hiring everybody, and I'm super proud what we accomplished. Of course, one can always do more, but I think in the landscape we were in, you know, when I landed back in Austria, they had a, they had a public vote if all genetic research should be forbidden for the whole country. Uh, you know, genetic research was the second worst word one could use <laughs> after atomic power. So this was basically an environment I got myself into. And <clears throat> so I tried to make the best out of it. And, and I'm very proud of the people I hired. You know, some of them become superstar researchers, which is, of course, always the end game, you know, to, to hire people who are more clever than you, work with people, surround yourself with people who are more clever with you, support them as much as you can let them lose and you know just uh, hook into the brains and and it's amazing what people can do under such circumstances <clears throat> and when i started i never did this for you know to become the powerful director of an institute this also totally bored me i wanted to make a difference uh, in my home country and when i started the essence was i want to have an institution where the director of the institution is totally redundant Mm. You know, where, where it doesn't matter who runs the place because, you know, the place is important. And after many years, I realized I had made myself redundant. Mission <laughs> accomplished. So, so I needed a new challenge. And so, you know, I explored some opportunities and possibilities. Uh, you know, the question, would it make sense for me to go to Boston, to Harvard as one of 100 other professors, which is great. But this also didn't really interest me. So I wanted a, a challenge and a place, you know, where there's already great faculty and an opportunity to make a grand difference. Uh, so that's why I chose uh, the University of British Columbia. So I'm running now basically the largest life science institute at the Canadian University with the boring name Life Science Institute. <laughs> <laughs> so who is out there to want to buy the name? You're welcome. Uh, we're very open to this. But the challenges are totally different <clears throat> here. You know, I went from, from you know, in essence, what I built was uh, the largest Central European Max Planck-like or Howard Hughes Janilia farm, like institute, you know, lots of money, uh, I called the shots. Uh, my philosophy was always don't hire so many PIs, but the PIs we hire, we support them with, uh, with lots of money, lots of infrastructure. You know, mouse genetics was all free. Uh, uh, lots of technologies were free. So the idea was to create a, a, a technology playground where, where clever people would 
would be able to play in the sandbox and you know have like the latest little tractors to build the sand castles. <clears throat> so this was the grand vision, and it worked really well because you know Jürgen Knoblich, who made the mini brains, as I mentioned before, he came from developmental biology of uh, Drosophila. You know, imagine in North America, you apply for a grant <clears throat> as a Drosophilist, uh, <laughs> saying you want to create the first human brain from stem cells. So, right. so you probably would be ranked dead last in America in the granting panel. So, so <clears throat> you know, I came from this environment uh, to a North American university environment with, of course, very different rules and the rules of granting. So, so, so I really looked for a challenge and I got the challenge because now I'm back to the roots, <laughs> writing grants to support my lab. You know, the time's over. It's, it's quite interesting again to, to really go back to this. And it's actually a, a good, good exercise to reinvent oneself, to, you know, the, to to escape from becoming a cynic old professor who knows everything better than everybody else anyway, to to a struggling old professor who, who has to write the next grant. So. Well, we'll have to elaborate and define struggling because I doubt you'll be struggling that much with uh, your amazing productivity and repertoire. But, um, you know, yeah, now that you're there, you're kind of, re- you're the master of reinvention. Uh, and you're going to add probably a sixth major research focus to your uh, lab there. What, what's uh, on the agenda? I know you said you're writing a Nature, nature presumably, protocols paper where you're elaborating on your blood vessel organoids. But, I mean, what's your uh, new field of interest now that you're kind of resetting at UBC? What, what's, what are you into now? Uh, so, so we uh, two years ago, we also we published this new platform technology in glycoproteomics. You know, where we can actually read out now at the global scale, not just the sugars or the complex sugar trees on, on proteins, but the exact site where the sugar trees are. So I, I'm investing a lot of of my time and of, and of course time of, of the students and postdocs who work with me into, into this field. So that's very exciting because we all know glycobiology is very important, but there were some technologies missing to uncover some of the secrets. So, so that's very exciting because this will allow us to really maybe define real, totally new biology and that's cool. Uh, and with this, uh, I, I would really like to hook up now with uh, environmental biologists here at UBC, so they're world class. Uh, uh, you know, they collected, for instance, from 150 uh, extreme sites, you know, deep ocean vents, uh, special special lakes which were formed by the last uh, ice age uh, you know which have 20 meters sweet water on top and then 100 meters of salt water uh, they collect the microbiome mm. and some of the sites the microbiome that it's that's really really interesting <clears throat> and you know to to mine basically environmental genes for for function for new biology for <clears throat> so that's it's, it's very cool. So, so one idea is actually to bring in our technologies we developed over the years uh, to bring it into these fields. <clears throat> and of course, for me to, you know, go out dive to at remote sites, because I got into diving the last year. So, you know, dive some deep, not deep, but some ocean vents and, you know, have some fun 
doing science and of course still with our blood vessels to to really you know hook up with with people around here and of course all over the world so next door for me uh, peter zenstra who is one of the key people in bioengineering is setting up shop developing an institute of bioengineering so we will hook up with him you know our blood vessels as we discussed before to bring them into the arena of other organoids uh, into the arena of bioengineering and engineering in general uh, so so that's what what we are doing and still love t-cells obviously it's <laughs> our paper on bh4 gotta love t-cells really cool too yeah. <laughs> so, so i probably won't change <laughs> well you're always changing so i guess one thing that won't change about you that you're not going to stop changing um but you know i think a, a real uh well I think what's led to a lot of your success, as you just described it there, a lot of what you're doing is tapping the local resources. You're taking all these bright minds around you, all the resources around you and specialty at the university, and then you're going to twist it to your domain and uh, to your will and find something, unearth some new mechanism. I mean, I'm looking at your 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 uh, publication history here, and I mean, no exaggeration at all. Uh, and this is really just superficial because there's a lot in between, but it's legitimately, you're averaging like one nature, full stop nature paper a year for the last decade, which is a level of output I think that's, you know, I don't think a lot of uh, investigators could compare to. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, I know I'm putting you in an uncomfortable position. You're a very modest guy. So I'm not going to talk to you about how brilliant you are. I just want to talk about how a trend like that exists, because it's not just nature. Like you, you almost exclusively publish in these high-end journals. And a lot of that is because, like I said, you have a way of, you know, finding the best way toward the problem. And you're a brilliant guy. You got brilliant people around you and all that jazz. But is there, you know, okay, I'll put it to you this way. When you're at the bottom, you know, when you're in my arena, I wouldn't say the bottom, but when you're looking up, I think you look up at, at investigators like yourself in these major labs with this astronomical level of productivity, and you think to yourself, well, they must have an inside track, or, you know, the rich get richer, they know the editor, there's some, there's some, it's easier, the path to publication in the major journals is easier. And it's, it's, you know, it's part, part self-preservation. I think when you're looking up, you got to tell yourself that to deal with the constant rejections at the highest level. But I'd like to hear your take on it. From the top, looking down, how would you explain the tendency for major labs like your own to consistently publish in these high-level journals and only in those high-level journals? Is it because you just happen to look at the problems that are the more important? You look into them at a level of resolution that's so deep that it brings it to the level of nature? What is it that makes you average one a year? Uh, well, <clears throat> a difficult question. <laughs> uh, I, I think is, uh, you know, science, when I started, we, you know, we started with making some of the first knockout mice in the early 90s. Uh, you know, science is always driven by, how should I say, the next sexy technology. Mm. You know, <clears throat> making antibodies. Uh, you know, you could get the Nature paper having the next antibody, uh, having the next uh, knockout mouse. You know, even if it was not very interesting. Uh, <clears throat> you know, now CRISPR is all over the place. Uh, uh, so I think it, first it's 
science has always been and will be driven by the latest technology. So what's very important is to have access to these technologies. Um, the second thing is, uh, you know, access is, is relative. You have to afford and be able to, to, to write the access. So that's what I mentioned with, I had always the luck to have enough money to, you know, to play that game, uh, which I do realize many people don't, going from grant to grant. And in Vienna, I also set up this place where everybody could play that game. Because science has also fundamentally, life science has fundamentally changed from, you know, having a clever idea to now being like, uh, you know, like particle physics. You know, nowadays a knockout mouse is supplemental figure number 1A. And that's about it. Mm. So you need to, to be in an interesting field. You have to ask, uh, you know, a key question, which many people ask. And I think what's really important, and maybe that's, what it takes and where I was always lucky is that I had the luck of enough financial support to take the time to bring, you know, an interesting observation all the way to, to genetic and, and mechanistic insights, which takes many years. So on the blood vessels, we worked, I think, for seven years. Wow. Could have published this uh, much earlier. Uh, but we were basically sitting on it until we had this all worked out. And if you read this paper, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's blood vessel engineering. Just to engineer new blood vessel was cool, but it's figure one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then it's all into diabetics. And so I think I, I had the luck and to be able to hold out with publishing until our stories were were you know, at the level where we can actually submit it to this journal. So, so <clears throat> we are not more clever than others. Uh, there are many, many clever people out there. Uh, you know, I, I, I come from the University of Innsbruck. This is where I studied medicine. And, you know, actually having studied medicine, it's in a, uh, you know, if you read, as you mentioned, my papers in many fields, <clears throat> I think what brings them all together is my quest to use modern science to figure out medical relevant issues and bring it back to medicine. <clears throat> so at the end of it. So that's, of course, uh, helpful. But, uh, you know, I studied at the University of Innsbruck. I was trained at the University of Innsbruck in science. So I know, I know what it takes uh, to be from a small university with very limited resources. Um, where, you know, <clears throat> how do you how do you make a dent into this whole world of science where, you know, the big American profs with the 40 postdocs, uh, you know, everybody and lots of money are also in. So, so, so that's, so I, I know it's, it's a tough life out there. And this is where I got myself back into. And I also have to say, you know, the first years when I was an independent PI in Canada at that time at the University of Toronto, I had a really hard time to learn my business because uh, I thought, you know, I have to bring out the greatest new idea. Uh, I, I just couldn't get any grants. Once I was literally, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, 
the, my grant was ranked la, dead last in Canada <laughs> in my field. He <laughs> said, you know, that's a great idea, but he's never done it before. He has oh, no man. idea what he's doing. And oh, so man. I was very close to having to drop out from this business <clears throat> uh, because I was just not getting anywhere. So, you know, this is where, so I'm also try to stay humble because I know exactly, you know, that they got some lucky breaks in my life. And, and so that's also why I think people deserve a real chance and there are lots of clever kids out there who deserve chances. And, you know, now, now one of my functions is to provide these chances to the clever kids. And, and chance is not just, you know, you hire them. Chance, giving people chances, also means you you stand behind them even if it's getting tough, uh, believing in them, you know? and and so that's how I always acted. So I know where I come from from you know a background of having not much money, having to struggle to to you know nearly dropping out from science because I was not very successful when I started. I mean I was successful, but I was just I have a hard time to get going and. And so I, I know where I come from. So I try to relate this and get give it back to people. That's very heartening and inspirational to hear that you have struggled, uh, you know, too. You've, it's not been easy for any of us. I think you're going to have a lot of applications over there, director. Uh, young PI is looking to work for you. You seem like a generous boss. Um, so let's get to the uh, the postscript here in the interview. We move away from the science. I think that's a good segue, a nice little bit of advice and inspiration to the young investigators out there. But we want to get a little bit more personal with a couple questions. Uh, one, uh, what was your greatest science blunder? I would love to hear it from a guy who has a million nature papers, something you did wrong. One thing. <laughs> uh Yes, I can tell you. In the early 2000s, we published a paper, actually in Nature, on a knockout mouse, <clears throat> which got colon cancer, so we reported it. Uh, then it turned out, uh, uh, you know, then two other groups actually made this knockout mice and said they can't see it. <clears throat> so we, uh, so we got stuck in this, uh, which was not a very comfortable <laughs> position to be in. Yeah. And we actually made uh, another knockout mouse for this gene and also realized uh, that they didn't get the tumors, which we then, you know, we had to write the correction and say, sorry, it was, you know, we, this was incorrect. And, and, but we stuck to it. And last year we figured out the reason why they got the cancer in first place, because our mutants had two other mutations they carried. So, mm. so yes, uh, sometimes, you know, doing even genetics, you get you get fooled by some background mutations. So. Well, is there anything interesting in those other mutations? Are they pretty uh, already defined? I mean, it's funny. Uh, they were could, defined. Uh, one was mucin-4 and the other one, uh, a regulator of the immune system, so <clears throat> which explained why we got this in the first place. So. Well, I can yes. say my respect for you has grown even greater, which I didn't think was possible. I, didn't even, I, I wish I had heard of that, because that's a great example, I think, of science self-correcting. But typically... It's always, you know, cloaked in some kind of sketchy fraud. I, I think that it's nice to hear that sometimes investigators just step up and say, yeah, you know what? You're right. 
Let me figure it out. And even more impressive is that you chased it down at the expense of years, which I'm sure yeah, yeah. was significant effort. So 16 years to chase it. <laughs> oh <my laughs> Just, but I think it's important to know. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's it's stung. It's stung to be uh, to be wrong there. So I'm sure you were plenty motivated to make it right. And so you did. So um, the bottom line is we were wrong, I admit it, and finally we know that we were wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's a good lesson. It's okay to be wrong as long as you figure out how you're wrong, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, second, who are your scientific heroes? This I got to know because we got to get them on the podcast if they're a hero of yours. Oh, my. They're, they're many great people. I just heard Sidney Brenner died today, right? So, mm. Which is so sad. To hear, so there are many brilliant people, but uh, you know where I come from, from Austria, with my upbringing, uh, I think I have I have two very, this you know very clear heroes. Uh, many years ago, I, I actually gave a lecture, and one of my heroes was sitting right in front of me. I could not believe it. Wow. And then afterwards, uh, I talked to him and. We actually watched a soccer game together. So I think this was the World Cup in 2006 in Germany. And we became good friends. <clears throat> uh, he died three years ago, Karl Gerassi. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if you know Karl. So he was actually a Jewish kid who was driven out of Vienna because of the Nazis when they came in. And then he became a chemist, uh, worked in Mexico City, and uh, developed the first synthetic sex hormone. Synthetic progesterone in the 50s. Uh, Carl is literally the mother of the birth control pill. So talk about science changing the fabric of society. Mm. Uh, so I always wanted to get to know him and then we became really good friends. So, so one, once he actually got the honorary professorship for psychoanalysis and he said since he had never done psychoanalysis he needs a patient and so so <laughs> i became his first patient and so he i really miss him so he became like my intellectual father and mm. and the second person i really respect and also had the luck to get to know him and actually made him the head of my scientific advisory board in vienna is uh, eric kandel mm. uh, you know the probably the most famous neurobiologist and, and and Eric also same story you know again from my background <clears throat> there are lots of amazing people out there you know with, which are brilliant but from my background growing up in in Austria so Eric again you know Austrian kid <clears throat> from Vienna driven out by the Nazis uh, and you know <clears throat> becoming the the guy who who unlocked the molecular control of of memory mm. and uh, eric is still around so i visit him sometimes and actually will meet him three weeks from now for dinner so so these are the two people uh, i really aspire to and and also you know eric also always has this smile in his face he's uh, always happy and and he also when i got carried away with becoming a, a stupid power monger. He always said, you know, Joseph, that's, you know, it's not, science is not about, you know, being the director of an institute. It's, you know, at the end, it's nice, but nobody really cares. So you really need to focus on your science. And so he brings me back 
to reality, uh, getting carried away. So, so these are really my two heroes. And, and, uh, and I always dream of uh, Austria and Vienna, where people like this would not have been driven away mm. and would have actually, you know, for the last 50 years, uh, run and controlled the scientific community. I think the place would be fundamentally different. Right. And so that's also a thought, you know, when I moved to Vienna, one of my roles might be, you know, not to make it right what happened back then, but to, you know, to, you know, you know, bring a little rose out for, for these people. And, to, you know, nucleate a nouveau Austrian renaissance, so to speak, to pick yeah, up where they left off. Yeah, which is really tough because, <laughs> you know, when I actually arrived, I always said, where I want to be is where Austria was 100 years before. Right. right. Karl Landsteiner, they, they discovered blood groups in Vienna, Vienna University, I think, had five Nobel Prizes. Uh, there was this, you know, epigenetics was founded in 1915 or something in, in Vienna, Paul Kammerer. Mm. Unbelievable. There was this institute of model organisms in in nearly downtown Vienna. You know, if you read the history, it was, you know, it was a privately sponsored institute in the 30s. They worked on 60 or 70 model organisms we don't even know anymore. You know, like the preempted C. elegans and Drosophila mm. and... Just spectacular research. Uh, so I, at the end, I realized this is where we, we will never get there anyway. So, so, so we just make little steps. And, and. Well, you're uh, certainly a, a Renaissance man in the modern era over there in uh, University of British Columbia. And I think you're a hero to many, Dr. Penninger. So someone's going to be telling me a story in no time about how they met you. And I can't wait to hear that one. Hey, it might be me. But thanks so much for joining us on this show. This has been a really fun talk. And, uh, you know, we'll be looking forward to seeing what you come up with next. Uh, yes, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, it's, it's uh, up to a new adventure. And I hope that some of our research uh, can contribute uh, to, to research of others, you know, make things better, contribute to, you know, some improvement of lives and, and I think the most important I would like to say at the end is really you know I'm very happy to help everybody who with our research you know I think it's very important to share and this I learned very early in my career it's it's not good to sit on your data or you know don't share it's much more important to open your heart and you know and help others and and Oliver Smith once told me he said, if you talk with 10 people, two will steal your idea and eight will give you a much better idea. And so, <laughs> so I'm very happy to, to maybe be one of these eight people, even if it's a stupid idea. Well, all right, you guys, you heard it here first. Joseph Penninger, his line is open, ready to collaborate. And uh, you could do a lot worse, people. All right, that brings us to the end of our interview and the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at stemcellpodcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We had a great chat with Joe P. today. 
engineer extraordinaire pumping out nature papers can't wait to see we have in a couple weeks on the show it's on the schedule guys check it out we'll see you then